Welcome to the podcast. Ken, thank you for sitting down here with me today. Yes, sir. Thanks for having me. Before we really dive into some stuff, I mean, you, you've got a lot going. You've been in the industry for 30 plus years now and has maybe made one of the biggest impacts on the, the whole Western industry. But, uh, I, you know, the nickname Woodrow, where, where does the nickname Woodrow come from? <laughs> Must have been about uh, 82 or 83 that uh, some friends of mine tagged me with that. I'm not sure it was a compliment, but it stuck. Right. I got to be from Lonesome Dove. Yeah, uh, it was uh, right on the heels of Lonesome Dove and, and uh, through the movie, uh, I, I, the ones that are closest to me, my buddies, Kevin Stewart was actually the one that uh, first tagged me with it and uh, him and Cody Foster and, and it's uh, just kind of stuck around. Well, and, and I think it's probably because that, that mentality, I feel like you're pretty aggressive in how you try to get things done and see, see things through. I feel like there's, there's got to be some intensity. I, I know there's some intensity behind you anyways, but I, I think that I could see that. Um, with the COVID deal and everything that's going on, you're president of the, the high school rodeo association here in Texas, right? Correct. Uh, THSRA, right. How did you get that pulled off? Because the high school finals are June 5th? It's coming up, yeah, real quick. I can't believe you got that pulled off. Was, was, that, was that one of the hardest things you've had to do <laughs> to in a while? Well, it just had to happen. Uh, you know, it's, uh, uh, well, first of all, we, we have a fantastic board with Texas High School Rodeo Association. And everyone on the board is, is very like-minded, but uh, man, we just couldn't take no for an answer. And it, it, it has been uh, extremely uh, time-consuming for sure. We've written a number of proposals that we had to submit to the local city and county and keeping up with the changes that happen every day with this COVID epidemic. Um, it's daily almost changes. It's starting to level off a little bit now, thank God, but uh, you know, just trying to put together a proposal that they could support. Abilene is a fantastic community. It's where our finals are, are, are hosted, but uh, a lot of people don't realize what a what a big deal it is. It's rodeo is tough everywhere. It's big everywhere, and I'm not one of these guys that go around pounding my chest about uh, the magnitude of Texas. But when you think about ten regions across the state, 1,400 contestants that have competed all year in their regions, uh, the top ten from each region qualify for the finals. You've got 682 contestants that that qualify each with a chance of making the national high school finals. And without the finals, there's no opportunity for those kids to advance to the national finals. We're not gonna uh, you know, do a lottery system and say, well, congratulations. So one of you 100 or four of you 100 qualifiers are gonna be our national team. So, and you know, really it's bigger than we are, isn't it? Because someone in the sport of rodeo has got to step up and do the work. You know, PBR, take my hat off to them for what they've done. Cave Creek is this weekend. Thank goodness for those people because it's, uh, it's, it's truly for the love of the sport because it's going to be 10 times, maybe 20 times harder to produce an event under the current restrictions that are relaxing, but still it's, it's very difficult, but it's just so important to our industry. And 
Um, I'm very proud that there's been about four other states that have reached out and said, you know, how did, how did you do it? How did Texas get this done? And, and we just gave them everything. I gave them the, the proposal that we submitted, the guidelines that we have developed for how the event can go down and, you know, how we're going to put people up in stalls and how we're going to assign camping spaces and how we're going to manage the inflow and the outflow of the rodeo because it's, you know, it's going to take us uh, about nine days to run the state finals. Right. So what do you think are some key, I mean, with everything with COVID, this has been so odd to me to, because when it was first going down, I was all for shutting things down, the, the social distancing, how everything worked out. And now I, I get further into it. I'm like, well, I don't think the closing everything down is actually as big of a, a big of a thing. Like, I, I don't believe in it as much. Uh, but I do look at these rodeos going on this summer, and I'm like, there's no way you can have a rodeo without some major changes to how the crowd works, how everything goes, because of everyone sitting so close together. And you're telling a family to come together and sit in this stadium with four to 15,000 people and just packed tight. And, and so when I look at that aspect, I'm like, I, I just don't know uh, how, how you can, as a committee, you can say that the families are going to be okay with with this. And I know COVID's not as dangerous as maybe it is, but there's still a lot of people that are at risk. So. What were some major factors that you think helped sell that and, and that you're going to be able to, to get this rodeo pulled off? Well, we had to make some changes. So the, in the initial proposal, there was no one in the grandstands. Uh, with the Governor Abbott's uh, new uh, guidelines, that has opened up a little bit for us. And so now the, the parent parents can sit in the grandstands, but it's still an event that's uh, block to the public but I guess if if there is anyone out there that's listening uh, and and I know how difficult it is one of the biggest problems I think that rodeo faces you know high school rodeo any any association really is that is it's impossible to pull off a production uh, at the level of a PRCA rodeo or any kind of a finals production or a major uh, horse show type of an event without volunteers and sadly and i hope the young people out there are listening you know uh to this if nothing else that you know we've got to dig ditches too regardless of our age and so the burden for that volunteerism is uh largely or almost completely upon the elderly you know you don't see very many people without gray hair volunteering at major rodeos across the united states and so it's that demographic that is affected most, sadly, by this uh, nasty virus. Um, initially, I was like you, you know, we are hearing all of this about this, uh, uh, you know, virus that is attacking our nation and the world. And we're, you know, glued to the TV, keeping up with Fauci and Burks and trying to understand, the, you know, how to navigate through this. And everything's clear in hindsight you know 2020 hindsight and now i think that uh, what we found is is that you know self-isolation and if you have issues health issues um you know a number of factors that i'm not going to get into you know here right now everybody knows them then self-isolation is is what needs to happen and it's just been so exciting to me and it just just proves out the resiliency 
of our industry and thank God for the people in our industry. Spanning all disciplines, there's just something about people that throw hay over the fence. There's just something about uh, the, the Western culture that you know we care for and love one another, but uh, you know when it gets tough, we're just gonna get tougher right. and plow through it. And you've been to some of the events lately where in private facilities and you know it's like you know it's wide open we're we're shaking hands and we're hugging and and uh uh we're you know we're competing and we're focused on our competition and we're trusting that people that that feel ill or have any of the symptoms are going to stay at home and so we just plow through don't we yeah well and i think that's the one thing about our our whole industry as a whole is not not much nonsense to us I, I mean they get up they work and you know what it doesn't matter what the job is or what the task is these people get things done and that's I think that's that's what I love so much about it and I've kind of been excited to see and I, and I think Texas and a few other states have handled it really well and it's excited to see things open back up and hopefully there'll be some more rodeos and and as and as things and more knowledge becomes available and, and treatments I think we're going to be in a good situation and it just kind of makes me proud that everyone did shut down and, and kind of how it all worked it was I think it was a great situation and I think it's just like right now June 5th through the 9th or 14th excuse me is that when the, the high school finals are going to be I mean to get that pulled off 60 days ago I'd have told you no way I, I just I couldn't even see it happening I, I I'm still concerned about how many rodeos will happen but I just I, I thought no way that this would go with the knowledge that I was I mean and I don't know that I was getting the best but uh, it's it's exciting to see where everyone's kind of came together and then as things open back up they they were ready to go and everything was it, it's kind of rocking and rolling again and I think that's great for the whole the, the whole industry so I'm, I'm excited to to see all that but you know Ken one thing about you I, I want to get into the background of you know how you kind of got into the the whole industry so growing up what what was what when did you get into the horse and kind of the western industry was that something you grew up in really born into it uh, my dad is, was the son of a rancher and uh, he uh, uh, you know I got my first horse when I was six months old and we just we just grew up in it it was it was what you know, ranching uh, was, you know, how, how my dad grew up, but then my grandfather and my great uncle were uh, passionate about uh, quarter horse racing. And back then it was the match races. And so my, my grandfather uh, raised, uh, you know, some really, really good horses. And, you know, their, their big kick was the, the match races. And so at, at every rodeo, there was a match race on the dirt track. And, and uh, so my dad and, and his brother and his two sisters uh, grew up rodeoing. So my, my oldest memories as a, a little kid was, you know, going with them to, to the rodeos. And so we, we, just, we just grew up that way. Right. And you, and you did most all the timed events, right? Bulldog, calf rope, team rope. And, and kind of decided that training horses, is that, was that kind of your passion as, as things went along? Well, my grandfather got cancer and sold the ranch. And so we, we, I did not grow up on the ranch, but I grew up in the feedlot industry. My dad 
uh, had a grow yard at one time and then uh, managed a 70,000 head feed yard in the Texas Panhandle where we grew up. And, uh, you know, we rode pins with all the cowboys and they, they roped and rodeoed. And so we, um, that's, that's just uh, kind of how we got started. But, but, you know, everyone did every event. It's more, it's today that's not the case. I mean, it's almost like it, not almost like it is the fact that if you are a basketball player, then you don't play football. Right. Uh, it's, it never ends. It's all, it's all season. If you play baseball, you don't play football. And uh, it's more specialized today in the rodeo for sure, just because it takes so much time and commitment to be great. And, you know, it's so exciting to me that our sport, rodeo, sport of rodeo has become that specialized. But whenever we were growing up, you know, we did every event. But dad didn't buy us finished horses. He bought us the best prospect that he could afford and said, it's up to you to do something with them. And I had two uh, younger brothers that, you know, if I'm being really honest, had a, a lot more talent than I did with a rope. And, uh, you know, I found that, you know, that I had, uh, I'm not saying I'm the greatest, I just had a passion for it. And I had the ability to take something that didn't know a lot and get them to do something. and. A lot of times, uh, my youngest brother Craig, you know, would would prove them out. Uh, I always competed, and I loved to compete, but um, I always migrated back towards the horse. I just have a real passion for for the horse, for the process, and uh, really for all disciplines. I'm not I'm not married just to the rodeo events. I just have a great appreciation for the training that goes into the maneuvers and the athleticism that it takes an equine athlete to perform in every Western discipline. Right. It is truly amazing what, I mean, when I, when you go through it and look, you just showed me a video that you guys have for classic equine and you, you go through and watch the shots and all these sports and that these horses can do and the different types of breeding and training that goes into them. It's unbelievable what horses can do. Like I, it blows my mind. I, I feel when I ride my horse around, I'm like, Oh my gosh, I, I, I'm the worst horseman <laughs> when I when I watch some of these guys. It's it's amazing how how this industry is getting with how much they know how to make a horse move and and really how to get them to that point now of where they can do those things is it's truly amazing how far things have come in the last I don't know I mean just since I've started paying attention in the last ten fifteen years I guess but. Uh, one thing that I was I, I wanted to talk to you about with the horse training and is the patience and with with that you know we we're over here at your house roping the other day and it's us four boys and you're kind of get on this horse and you're riding this horse around and and i think it's it might have been one of wyatt's head horses or one of your head horses or something but you know you're riding him around in loping circles and 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 making him move and then you would go put him in the box and just let this horse sit and relax and what what really jumped out to me is you know i'm when i get roping i will i want to rope I, I get in this mode where I, I try to get as many reps as possible. I got my horses ready, and I sometimes, and I know, no, I do it a lot, I forget how important it is to, to remember how much this horse needs and how we got to show releasing points and train these horses and how much time that takes. And, you know, I, I, it's just something that jumped out to me, but 
you know, there's four boys that are wanting in the box and you're sitting this head horse in the box and you're just relaxing, just doing what this horse needs. And as soon as he was comfortable, it might've been a couple of minutes, it might've been 10 minutes in that box and you'd ride him out. And I, I, when, I, when I left that night, I, I just, I thought about that a lot. I was like, I do not spend enough time on my horses in areas that I need to. And the fact that, you know, you're doing it, that I, I mean, I, I don't know that you're going anywhere to compete or, you know, that that horse had what his job was gonna be, but you were, you were there for that horse that day. And I, I learned, I, that was something I was just like, I was blown away at the, you know, you were there for the horse, not anyone else. It was just to do your job. And I think that that's, that's what we get away from sometimes is the, the being a horseman and the training aspect. And, uh, and you want to shed a little bit of light on me with that, with the, the kind of the patience and understanding of how these, how you kind of go about it with your horses? Well, it's probably impossible. Uh, few, few people can do it. Uh, Joseph Harrison is a great example of someone that can you know, train great horses and compete at, you know, the highest level uh, as a, a, a rodeo competitor. So, but, you know, it's, uh, I don't know, I don't even know how to, to say it other than that there's really no other way. You can buy a lot of horses and go through them, you know, like, like a lot of people do in our industry or you can develop the patience that it takes to train one, or you can pay someone to do it. But it doesn't replace the, what the, the horse has to have in order to you know, either be maintained or trained. And it's a, I, I guess I found that role within uh, our, our kids. We, I used to have to train them all for myself and then keep them together. I know how hard at work it is to to start with something that doesn't know anything and then having, you know, finished and ready to, to, to compete at a high level. And, you know, the, the biggest honor that I get is whenever someone, uh, you know, takes something that, that I've, you know, had a part in, in training and, and competes on him and, and wins. But, uh, you know, no one likes to do push-ups and sit-ups either, but that's, that's part of what you have to do to, to stay fit. And, and the, the, the whole, I've always been more for the horse than for me, and that's also why I'm not the, the greatest competitor either, because I'm always thinking about what does the horse need instead of what I need to do to win. Right. Well, I think that that's, it's so hard of a balance because we want to go compete, and what these horses have to do, we're, we're asking them for a lot. And then... For their life. Yes, for their life. And the expectations are so high that when we practice, we want to practice with that intensity and we don't realize like, Hey, to take the time and say, you know what, if I just lope circles on this horse, like you did that day, um, for, I don't know, it was, it was an hour of loping and then sitting in the box to maybe even an hour and a half, two hours. And just, there was no rush. It was just making work outside of the arena uh, or in the arena. And then when he got the box, and got in the corner that's where he got to relax and that's that's what we were working on was was building this horse's confidence in the box and and i i think that as a in life we just get moving fast and we want to you know we want to push through and get to that next step so fast and we forget the process of things you know you might have to do that a hundred times on that horse but at the end result might be 
one of the best horses ever. You know, if that, if it, you never know what it'll be, but, or a product that you're extremely proud of, which that's probably better than anything else, you know, something that you truly love, you know, that you've, man, I help this horse get to that stage. And I think that that's the patience aspect. Um, you know, that's, that's what I'm curious with is, you know, the business and everything else, how important is patience? Well, it's everything, and um, I'm I'm not going to tell you that I'm great at it. I have it, it's it's my worst enemy. Right. Uh, uh, they, you know, my nickname is Woodrow. I don't have much patience by, by nature, but I have to make myself uh, do that. Whether it's in with a horse, or you know, and business is the same way. You have to have a, a, a plan and a direction, and you know, be disciplined to uh, achieve a certain goal, but. Uh, not all the times can you rush the process or you end up messing it up. Right. Well, let's, let's get into the, the business side of things. You know, um, well, you've got a few, a few brands that you're in charge of. What, what all brands are you in charge of right now? Well, Equibrand is, uh, uh, you know, something in small print at the bottom of an ad. A lot of people don't really understand what it is, but basically it's broken up into two divisions. There's a products group and an entertainment group. Under the products division, of course, we have Classic Rope and Rattler Rope, and then Classic Equine, Cashel, Martin Salary, and then we also have Classic Equine by Richie, and uh, a partnership, or not partnership, a distribution uh, for Jim Edwards Bits. On the entertainment side, uh, we've got the, the, the TV, the podcast, the social media, uh, all the platforms that we have there, and uh, Racer's Edge, podcast, TV show, formerly uh, Final Spin TV, uh, and then just all the YouTube, Instagram, uh, Facebook, social media for all the brands, and then we also do the social media management for Purina Performance Horse as well. Right. This is a, those are, I mean, it's basically every, everything Western, you know, that it, your hand is in almost all aspects of it from, I mean, every, basically every rodeo event that involves a horse and some that don't even to, to the show events and all of that. I mean, it's, it's amazing because going back to classic, it, it was that how you got started into everything was through the, the rope business. Yes, everything started with uh, Classic Rope Company. So when did, how did how did that come about? You know, you getting involved with the rope company. Um, I was a banker after I graduated from college. I really wanted to be a horse trainer. That was my goal, and I wanted to, uh, you know, become an apprentice with trainers that I really respected. My parents wanted me to pursue a business path, and. Uh, you know, flip of the coin, uh, long story, but I just said to you all, I was either, I took an aptitude test that said I had an aptitude for finance and marketing. And so I said, okay, well then I want to be a banker. I don't want to leave Stephenville. I graduated from Tarleton State, like this part of the country. I'm going to uh, see if I can get an apprenticeship and go to work for some horse trainers that I really respected or I was going to be a banker because that's something that I thought that I could stay in a hub 
you know, within 90 to 100 miles anyway of Stephenville. And uh, so the, I interviewed, and the first job I got was with a horse trainer. And uh, as it is in that industry, that horse trainer worked for uh, some wealthy individuals that decided to exit the horse industry. And so before I was really got to do my first day, I didn't have a job anymore. And then the next day the bank called. So I was a banker and uh, did that, learned a ton, enjoyed it. Uh, wouldn't take for the experience, but wearing a tie just wasn't my thing. And so one of my customers at the bank was a guy named Ted Tomerlin, and he had been contracted by a family to put together a business plan for a rope company. And uh, they asked him to hire a, a business manager, and he asked me would I want to uh, do that job. And the nephew of the, the couple that was financing this endeavor had a son that had been in the rope business and uh, you know knew how to make all the ropes and that part, but they wanted someone to be on the business side. And so he asked me if I wanted to do it. I said, you know, yes, I can't wait to do it. So we jumped into that. Then the family broke up pretty quickly after that. And uh, um, anyway, that's where it started was with Classic. So when you first, what year was that when you started? 87. 87. What, what did the rope business look like then? Nothing like today. <laughs> it was, it was the wild west really. There was a, a you know, a, a lot of different rope companies uh, back then. And most what people did was they, they bought uh, coil ropes from uh, New England or Plymouth, and then they would tie them as their own, lay them in the sun, stretch them out, and uh, put their brand on them. And really, they were sold at at dusty arenas, out of backs of pickups, at events. And and so there wasn't any uh, retail interest at all in ropes. It, but also, the sport was not as anything like it is today. This was pre-USTRC and pre-Team Rope and Explosion. So. The industry was much smaller, but um, it was uh, it was much different, much different world back then. So when they they would come basically in a like you'd basically each of these rope companies out not classic, but they would take their own rope, they cut it off a length that they want, and then they would coil them up a certain way, and then you'd sit them out in the sun, and they you know they each kind of have that type of feel, and then just basically and you know the distribution wasn't there so it was just like you told your friends I mean there wasn't really wholesalers moving them at that point was there very very limited right so very, very limited it was just like it was just pretty much your buddy oh, I got kind of I know this guy he's tying some ropes here we go uh, yeah, he's got him it almost seems like a drug deal to me like I know this guy with some ropes it, it was exactly like that <laughs> so it, it, you know the the there would be a local guy in, in a community uh, that, you know, had the deal with the rope company and he was, you know, the, the agent, so to speak. And, and uh, they would order for their friends or maybe they would have, you know, a couple dozen ropes in inventory, maybe, but mostly they did special orders or you just went, you know, said, well, I didn't know it was that easy. I'll just go direct and get it myself. But it wasn't anything like it was today. But the ropes were made differently too. They were, you know, made in 600 foot lengths at a time, and the the machines that that we had with Classic were were quite different. 
And uh, our, our, our segue into the industry, ironically, really became more through the rope companies that, that decided, you know, uh, to a large degree to, to buy our bodies as opposed to some of the coil ropes. The ropes that we made were in cut links. They were made and waxed, stretched, and then they could be tied quickly as opposed to buying a coil of rope that you had to lay out in the sun for at least a year for it to cure because the, the treatment process was different than, than the, the, the wax treatment that we have today. And uh, so, you know, these rope companies would have their inventory dollars tied up for, you know, 12, 18 months before they could, you know, tie the first rope and sell it for any kind of a profit. Where with our ropes and the way that we made them, that they could, uh, you know, buy the coils, cut in certain lengths, and as soon as they got them, they could just stretch them in time and turn their cash over much quicker. So we marketed our own brand, but then we also sold to a lot of companies. And then over time, our brand became strong enough that they would be marketed as a King Tide Classic or a Grant Tide Classic or a Callaway Tide Classic uh, and so on. And, uh, you know, we just, no one really marketed to the consumer. And so that's what we did. We started marketing the ropes to the consumer, you know, getting them in the, the hands of, you know, the, the greatest talent of the day and, you know, helping the, the masses become familiar and actually comfortable with a different kind of a rope and a different idea in a rope period. They were faster. And more than anything, you know, that the, the color was different. They weren't the, the dull gray cool rope type color. And, and uh, you know, these were bright white with the classic gold or the mint green color of the moneymaker. Right. And how big was classic when you guys started that? How many kind of outside of the people that were maybe tying ropes, but, um, you know, as far as maybe who's overseeing it and then kind of the marketing or, you know, your job role in Classic. How big was the company? Yeah, how, how many employees was, oh. was there involved? Kind of, you know, once it was starting to distribute to, to other companies. About seven. Seven people. Yeah, we had uh, one rope machine and uh, we had, uh, a, you know, that was it. And so then you had other people there that would help, you know, finish the rope and then we grew to, the second machine and went on from there. But initially there was, I guess it was more like five people instead of seven in the beginning. Right. And uh, I mean, obviously when you're starting out, team roping is pretty small at this point. Did you ever, I mean, how big did you think it could get? Or was there, what was the goal with it when you were first starting this, getting into this industry? Well, initially the, the goal was to take off a suit. Right. And so, what, you know, I just wanted to get back to the, to the Western industry uh, side of things in the worst way. So that, that was the, the first thing. And that, you know, I had no money in college and had no money whenever, uh, really, you know, whenever I was a, at the bank, even though I was a loan officer, I was still, you know, scratching and clawing and, and trying to make it because, you know, banker's pay is not all that people may think that it is. And so... Um, as the, the, the rope business began to, to start to, to take off a little bit, you know, my, my income uh, had increased a little bit to where I could even afford to go jackpot. 
right. and uh, you know amateur rodeo and, and and some of that. So I guess initially my goal was just you know to sustain my single habit and uh, uh, passion to ride horses and rope steers. Just to get back into the industry. Right. And uh, so as things were growing, was there a time where, when did it start to get like team roping is becoming more of a mainstream, this is what more and more people are, are doing and you guys are starting to, to kind of increase volume in your sales. What, what, what do you think that time frame was or what year was that? Uh, it had to be 1990 uh, when the USTRC started. Uh, Classic was Classic and Tony Lama Boot were the first sponsors of the United States Team Roping Championships, and you know the the idea behind USTRC and uh, you know of course we're in the we're, couldn't be any deeper in the team roping industry with with Classic and the rope company, but. Uh, just seeing the vision for what that that could be and what it was we jumped on board became a sponsor and you know to be quite honest we just rode the coattails of the movement that happened because it was amazing right so I mean obviously a good place at a good time but there was a there's a ton of knowledge that goes into it and, and this is what like me as a business owner and and how to scale your business obviously you got to have a product that people want but your product has got to improve. So it was just like the, when did the four strand or the idea for the four strand with the core come in? Uh, the four strand, that began in 97. 97. Right. So you guys have been moving product pretty good and, and there was a few rope companies and I would say it was probably pretty competitive. I, I don't know all of them that were involved in that in those days, but tying to the, to the USTRC, which is, was probably the biggest marketing platform or the only marketing platform really for, for people to see or even get their hands on products, right? It was definitely the biggest marketing program for the sport of team roping. Yeah. Uh, no question about it. And uh, yes, no doubt about it with, with, with having the sponsorship with USTRC and tying our brand to, you know, that fantastic model. Uh, and it, you know, the USTRC didn't only you know, change the rope industry or give opportunity for rope companies, but you know, it, the, the, the entire uh, greater market outside of equine even benefited with trucks and trailers and apparel and you name it. But so there was an amazing explosion that happened with the growth and participation in that sport. So 97, the f these four strand ropes, uh, and it was when you acquired Rattler, correct? We acquired Rattler in 97, largely based upon that. Uh, Paul Sullivan started Rattler Rope Company, and uh, he, it was based in Vernal, Utah, and uh, we were friendly competitors in the marketplace. Right. Uh, had a good relationship, and, and uh, Paul just really wanted to tie himself to something bigger than Rattler. And uh, he had an idea for, uh, what a four strand might could could be for for industry had an idea of how to, how to to make it how to pull it off, and uh, but more than anything he wanted to uh, move to Texas and be a part of of uh, Classic. Actually, it was by then it was Equibrand because we had started Classic Equine and changed our name to Equibrand, and uh, so uh, we teamed up with Paul and we acquired Rattler Rope Company and 
moved it and all the employees uh, down here to Texas and and started on, uh, on on making that rope. And you know, team roping had advanced dramatically in that six-year period of the USTRC starting. Uh, you know, a novice from 1990 wasn't the same novice of 1997. The sport had changed dramatically, and and uh, times were faster, and, and styles had changed dramatically. And so uh, we were just, you know, as a company, trying to stay ahead of the industry and, you know, always looking towards what's going on and, and what other sports are doing right. Uh, golf, for example, you know, the technology and, and changes in the golf ball and in the clubs and and how they, they work to improve the game and uh, baseball bats and, and you go down the list, but our sport's no different. And so we're always, you know, trying to look forward and try to stay ahead of the industry and, you know, keep up so that we remain relevant because what you did yesterday doesn't matter. People look for what you can do tomorrow and how you can help benefit them and, and uh, you know, help them win. Right. And so a lot of this, you know, this, I'm so fascinated by it because being a, a you know, in this, your position, what, what was your job title at that point? Um, I mean, were you overseeing everything with Classic? In uh, 1987? Oh, in the early 90s, kind in of. Our, oh, yes. In the, I, I was, uh, uh, I don't know what you, president, CEO, C yeah, call CEO. it what you want to. Well, like as a CEO, you know, your job, you, you have to be creative and evolve and, and make things work and make sure that you're providing value to your customers. But then also you have to put people in play that can be creative and then can take the business to the next level. What? Is that something that's always kind of been been there for you? Do you think that that was there, or you know, how did you start getting to that point where you you could manage or find talent and bring talent out in people? From doing it the wrong way for about five six years, right? And trying to catch every ball, and uh, found you know looked up one day and found you know myself I turned myself into a funnel that you know nothing happened in the business unless it came through me and. And uh, uh, just, you know, woke up one day and realized how ignorant that was. Right. And so, you know, just began to, you know, turn loose of some things and, and bring a bigger group into it. And, you know, nobody can do anything alone. It, ta it takes a, a, a team and a good support team and surrounding yourself with great people. And, uh, you know, I get more enjoyment out of, you know, great ideas coming from within our group and and i am proud that we have assembled a, a an unbelievably fantastic team of like-minded people incredibly hardworking. you know believe also like me that uh we always have to reach for tomorrow don't rest on your laurels what's next we have to be looking forward and uh just you know to continue to push to 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 do everything we do better right so just basically saying you know, I, I, this is, I think this is hard for a lot of people to understand, but when you, when you create something and you're heavily involved and invested like you are, you want to have all the control you can. And to me, there's times where you've got to be able to let it go and, and maybe let people mess up. And, and what I think we're, we're so afraid of failure, but do you think that the, having 
those people and like letting them mess up or work through things makes things move a lot faster? Or how did, how do you try to get that? Like those failures or, you know, help people grow and come up with those ideas? Uh, I don't have an ego. No ego. You know, there, there's, there's, it's, you know, I, th I think that's the biggest mistake that, that people make in business or sports or anything else. I mean, you've got confidence is one thing, but an ego that gets in your own way, you know, just it holds you back. Right. So there's no such thing as a bad idea. Uh, there's no such thing as, as uh, uh, you know, a, a me, me, me attitude either. It's not a successful business plan. So, um, you know, just we have a culture that is, is very inviting. And, you know, we ask for input from everybody within the company. Just because we have a great idea for what a product may be, you know, uh, people that are on the ground in production uh, have an input in that because, you know, how, they'll, they'll have an idea on how it can be even better or how we can make it smarter or more consistently or, or whatever. But it's, uh, it's, it's just, you know, you, you can't, uh, it's easy to be in love with your own ideas. It's really easy to be, but you have to be open-minded and you have to take uh, thought from somewhere else. And, and, that, and that's what excites me. I like to, you know, to have an idea or listen to idea and brainstorm on how it can be better and make it, a, make it a, a team thing because whenever the team is invested, uh, it's amazing what kind of things can happen. It can move, just move so much faster. Yeah. Well, and I think too, we forget, you know, you come from a feedlot background. That's a huge amount of work. You're a cowboy, but also there's a, a lot of business. And I mean, from running a feedlot, I mean, there's, feeding the cattle just the cost on that and managing it and all of these aspects that come into it to your next step of be, you know kind of the horse industry and being a trainer and then going to the banking all of those things you, you probably didn't feel like you get paid very much but then those apply to the next thing so it's like if you can do these jobs good and and learn what and it kind of helps you to, for the next thing and, and if you can kind of take the ego out and evolve and understand how to how to grow i think that that's that's got to have a lot to do with it wouldn't you think yeah you know it's just discipline and hard work right you know it, it, kids graduating from from high school or college you know it's uh, they talk to a lot of them uh, mainly because i got kids in that in that age right now you know you know what am i going to do you know if someone want to pursue a pro rodeo career or some of them you know are going to go into business or you know, pick up a trade and, you know, man, you can't make a mistake. Just work hard, set a goal and move towards it. And along the way, keep your eyes open because something else is going to uh, pop up that that uh, maybe is more interesting or uh, creates a new opportunity. But you just, with anything, you just have to plow forward and run into fences and get a bloody nose and you'll you'll take a different direction. But if you just keep digging and trying, you'll get there. Well, I think that's also what makes people so good at, at things is they've tried it a lot of different ways and they know how how to not do it or when adversity comes up, they can they can just handle it. And I think that's that's what really I think makes people valuable and and people great at things is when it's tough or something goes wrong, they know how to handle it. I mean, you look at most disciplines uh, in life, you know, if if you're not in the perfect situation or things are going wrong, can you still get the job done at a high level? 
and and are figuring out how to. And I think that's really important to to understand because that means you kind of gotta you gotta run into fences and you gotta mess it up. And so you can't be afraid of that either. You know, you kind of gotta you kind of gotta be pushing yourself, right? It, just as far as you can go that way. Yeah, you have to you have to push yourself, but you also can't ever relax. Right. Uh, you, there's just never. And, and, and I think we evolve our entire life, and you have to have a, a willingness to to learn and a willingness to grow. And you know, there there's always a better you. Just yeah. keep just keep looking for the better you, whatever that is. So I got to go back to this four strand rope because this is I I have to. And maybe at my age and just swinging four strands and I, I got to use the classic money makers and, and crossed over to, to the power lines at, at some point. I believe it was at XRs. I'm not sure which one I tried out. But um, the four strand rope, when you first started swinging them and, and feeling the difference between a four strand and a three strand, which I would recommend to everyone to, to do that if you haven't, because there's... There's a huge difference. Uh, what what did you think when you were first swinging these four strand ropes and and what it was going to look like? It, it was the most exciting uh, development uh, of, it, of all, and you know we've we come out with eighty to a hundred new products every year for the last years, but the the XR four was truly special because it totally changed a team rope. Right. Uh, you know, it's the tip feel that you have. It's the the bottom strand for the healer. It is the body that's in the loop, and uh, you know, it's the big birth of golf club for the sport of team roping. Yeah, I mean, it it added speed and finesse to your to your swing. I, I remember it. I, we, my, my parents would put on ropings in Mesquite, Nevada, and gosh, I, I couldn't have been. Uh, I wasn't too old, and I think it was Camus Jennings. And I was, I, he'd come over, I asked him for some help with my heading after a jackpot. And he's like, baby boy, that rope you're swinging, you can't, you can't shut that loop. He said, you need something fast. You need to be able to snap it shut. And, and I, I don't know what it, we, we, he, we started swinging some of those four strands. He said, these guys are using these ropes. You need to be using these. And, and that's when I really, like, I started studying it. And, and I, I couldn't believe the difference in the in the feel and everything and just how your loops would hit and how just it it complete I don't know what the times and what the heading and everything looked like but in that four to five year period it had to have changed so much I would love to see if there's data on times uh, and what it kind of looked like but it just seemed like the that was all there and then you know what what I think so interesting about it is the, the XR was the first one to come out, right? XR4, right. And then the power line was the second one. That's right. I heal with an XR4. That's that's my favorite heel rope. And I head with a power line. That's, and it's just to see it, you know, 23 years later or something around there, I, they're still so great. And it's amazing to me to have a product like that. And I'm, I'm sure a lot's changed with how you time and, and do it, but really the, the same, the same name, the same model is, is there. Is that, did you ever think that that would, would it, it was going to turn out like that? That they would have that kind of legacy. Yeah. Um, I did just based upon 
what we'd already experienced with the gold and the moneymaker. You know, we still sell those ropes 33 years later. Right. Uh, so they haven't, they haven't really left. But it's, uh, what I didn't imagine then was the further uh, progress and development of the sport of team roping that would cause us to develop all of the other ropes that we've come out with since the XR4. Um, whenever we came out with the XR4 and then the Powerline Light, you know, uh, really all of us thought that, you know, how can we really improve upon that? But then whenever the sport changed and, you know, that's really good, you know, appreciate it, classic, but we need something smaller and even faster yet. And so we, uh, you know, come out with other ropes like the Spider. Right. You know, now we pushed ourselves to a five strand and then, uh, you know, even the Triton that we came out with last year, we need something that in the Rattler line that, you know, has a poly blended feel. But one thing that I don't know that people really uh, understand about about Equibrand period, but about our rope divisions is that every rope that we make is truly unique from one another. It's not uh, one's red and one's green and one's a different color. They each have their own unique blend of, of fibers, nylon and polyester fibers and blends thereof. And I think it's uh, last count, it was something like 56 different types of fiber used to go into all the various different types of ropes. So through the, la the, the last few years, it's been more micro tweaking. You know, the NXT heel rope, for example, is, you know, in between an NV4 and a Powerline Light. So with the, the demand for the professionals and, e and even the amateur roper to, to have something that, that fits either their unique style or their unique size or their unique uh, swing, that you know, the, the, the later development and the continued development continues to be towards um, you know, fulfilling the needs of the consumer. Well, and I think that's, it's so important to understand that because it's just like a golf club or, you know, they're always changing the heads, the angles, everything that goes into it. But as team roping changes, you know, the early 90s to, to late 90s, the type of cow they rope is not even close to the one we're roping now. And the programs with the cattle and everything changes and the setups the producers are putting them on. And, and now with the knowledge that we have about how our, our swings work and different things like that, and everyone's just a little bit different. So to find that customized, like what fits you the best, it, it, you've got those options. And that's, that's what's so fun about this is it's like, I mean, team roping is just, it's just now hitting this stage in general where or as a whole overall market, there's getting to be a ton of knowledge from your, you know, your be true beginners to your really high advanced ropers so that they can kind of have that customized deal, like what fits them, what fits their, their horse. You know, I, I will use different ropes for different horses and, and I just kind of know that that stride and my swing, how it's going to work. And, and so that's, it's just things like that. And, you know, I, I think it's, it's amazing that, the amount of depth that we have as as ropers and knowledge and i think it's it's really really cool to see that with the the just the end of it on the ropes but yeah and, and you're a big contributor to that too you know with with what you're doing with x factor and the way that uh uh you know it started with usTRC there were 
team rope in schools before USTRC, right. uh, no doubt. But with USTRC and the explosion of team roping, and then you know a bigger market developed, and then it was the the videos and the CDs, and then now with what you're doing and how it can you know come to people so quickly, and you know breaking it down with uh, uh, different you know amazing talent that that you have on your programs, but uh, man these these kids and their ability to to watch video and to see and and have things explained to them and you know in the way that you honestly the way you ask questions right and uh bring it out of these you know amazing ropers that that are on your program but uh you know it's also you know it's not you know there's nothing special about me or equibrand but you know people that are competitive or just they're just competitive just because you're a kid doesn't mean that that uh, you're the only one that wants to grow and learn. And, you know, uh, guys going to the 40-plus, uh, they're, they're working at their game too. Well, this is what I love about team roping, and I think it's why it's – it's I truly love this sport. And, and we talked about this the other day, but my my goal outside of, to you know, to, to rope well and maybe make the finals or a world championship like every, every kid has would be to just make a major impact on the industry. So I truly love team roping, but I love it because, you know, I might be entered at the World Series finale this year with a family member. I mean, I've roped there with my mom, my sister, my dad, and my uncle at, at those, the U.S. finals. And, and I think that's what we all take for granted is when we go to the arena, you get to do it as a family. You know, maybe golf, but really golf isn't, it just doesn't have that same feel for the whole family. And so you, you get to be competitive as a family and work at things as a family and go compete on a weekend or daily basis, however you want to do it, or and you can support your, your, you know, your family members that way. There's nothing else really like that that we can do. And, and to have that with the numbering system, that's what makes roping so special. And that's what it excites me to, to give so much to it because, I, I mean, my dad and I, when I go back to Idaho, we're gonna, we'll rope all the time. My mom will come in the practice pen you know, if my sister's down there, we'll, we'll all rope as a family almost every day. And, and to do that and then to raise horses together as a family, you're like, what else could you do to, to have that kind of relationship? And, and there's not, there's not an, another sport uh, in rodeo or outside of rodeo that offers that same opportunity. Oh, it makes it. That's, what's, that's what I love. And I think that's where, you know, we're providing value. And that's what, that's what excites me here today because, you know, you see a company like yours that's been involved with it for so long and, and has made this huge impact and has got so, I mean, so much. I mean, could you have imagined how far and how many professional or people have made a living out of, you know, using your products? I mean, that's huge. Yeah, that's it's it's uh, it's very rewarding to see someone that that has you know enough trust really because that's what it is it's trust uh, to to use our products whether it's a, a rope or any of our equine products that that we make you know it's a it's a, the ultimate compliment. Well, let's talk about that. You know, the testing is is this is what's so unique to me about all of the products is to put a good product out there. It's got to be proven, right? Right. So you've got to test it out. How do you, how do you make sure that these are you know your products are tested from? I mean, how many new products are you putting out a year between you know from just classic or excuse me Equibrand? 
Uh, 80 to 100. But so to understand that, you know, there may be variations of colors of a single product. So, uh, but you know, it's 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 quite a lot. But product development is a full-time business for us. Uh, we have a team that is dedicated to that effort. And, uh, you know, it depends on the product. There's, uh, you know, some products, and, and, and we only do this now because we screwed it up so many times before. But, and now in order for, for a product to go to market, it is rigorously and vigorously tested and until we become comfortable with it. So we, you know, tweak it ourselves. We get the fit right if it's a fit or uh, the feel. And then we, you know, use, you know, our, our team of uh, ambassadors and endorsers that are, you know, amazing talents within their specific fields. And once they sign off on it and, and approve it, then we also, you know, uh, have the amateur take a look at it and make sure that, that they can either apply it or use it or swing it or whatever. Some, sometimes we can get a product developed, you know, quickly within months. And then sometimes it literally takes years. Right. Years. Well, and I think that's where ego is so important to understand that if someone's like, Hey, I, I just don't, I don't like it. And, and, and I think that, is that something you try to strive for is a, a, a very realistic conversation of what they do or do not like and how to improve it? You know, is that, is that tough to get, you know, feedback from, from those people? No, because I think that, well, you know, we, we, in, we invite that feedback. There's no such thing. You, you have to try really, really, really hard to hurt our feelings. Right. You know, any feedback is good feedback. And uh, so it's, you know, it's, we, you know, set it up that way. Some, some people are just so polite that you have to drag it out of them, but... Uh, th those that have worked with us for a period of time now understand that we want it straight. We, we want the, the real truth and, you know, hit us between the eyes with it. So that makes us better. Right. And, you know, I, I think about this from uh, I, a guy, a businessman, very successful, was giving me advice. And he says, you know, to, to be successful selling a product, you need to know everything about your product. And then you need to know your consumer and make sure that they want that product and then how to communicate it to them. And, I, and I've really got a pretty good dose of it with watching Martin Saddlery because that's, uh, that's been the last couple of years, right? With, uh, I mean, Martin, you guys have had Martin for a long time, but the custom, well, kind of give me the, the evolution of Martin Saddlery, which, what you guys have done with that. Uh, we started uh, Martin Saddlery in 98 and, uh, you know, it was in conjunction with uh, a team roper and settle maker, Dale Martin, originally. And Dale was a customer. He had a, a Martin Saddlery and Western Wear in Idabel, Oklahoma. And Dale's a good saddle maker. And we were talking at the Denver Market uh, one year, and he said, you know, I've got an idea for how, uh, mm. you know, there's a, a void in the market for you know, custom options for saddles, because that's back then, you know, stores would buy a quartz or a circle wire or a crates type of a saddle that they would stock in the store. And, you know, you bought model number 100-32Z and it came just like that. And so we started it off in, in letting uh, stores, you know, have some design 
or, or all the design uh, input that they wanted in a saddle that they wanted to sell in their store. And uh, so that's how we got our, our, our foothold in, in the market was from doing that. Uh, a couple of years later, uh, Dale left to go pursue some other business opportunities and we just kind of kept on rolling with it from that. And then we went through all of the the life cycles really you know it's we initially we bought our saddle trees and then we uh, decided if we're going to get more specific within each discipline and have more quality control we started making our own saddle trees and uh, really working hard towards the fit aspect of it for a few years and then over the last i would say five years uh, have just really poured ourselves deeply into each discipline and like ropes uh, the the varied styles and needs that people have uh, within you know each uh, western discipline for riding styles and you know it's as diverse in in team roping as it is in anything else and so um, through you know, different features that we can build within the saddle tree, uh, gullets, fits, cannels, ground seat, uh, stirrup position, etc. cetera. Uh, we've come a, a long way and, and we'll continue to, you know, pursue that avenue. And, you know, again, nothing we do today is good enough for tomorrow, so. Right. Well, and I think uh, having these, you know, the, the, the really the best endorsees you know that your team of endorsees and riders is such at a high level and, and to like you know to wear the classic patch or the the classic equine patch is a is a big honor and and so the guys that you see doing that are the feedback you can get from them i think is so great because i you know we go do an x-factor video shoot and joseph harrison's talking about how he likes his saddle and and it just varies so much between guys like like him he's i mean he how he rides and what he likes can be a lot different than the next healer and so to have these these different options and to to be able to do that i think is so important to to understand that we all we all have different styles and we ride different styles of horses and we want a different feel and and to be able to put that together so you can get that in a saddle same thing like you said with the ropes it's it's so important to to get to that stage and it's it's got to be rewarding to to see where it's at but it's it's fun to hear because it's like i don't even feel like do you ever just look back and be like slow down and man this is we've come a long way with this or do you just kind of keep grinding every day on that no we're terrible we we, we we we're terrible we don't we keep pictures or or uh uh you know pins on a chart or anything it's it's not just me it's the entire team plows forward but you, you did say one thing that, that I, just as a shout out, just one of, of thanks really, but you know, it is guys like Joseph and Luke Brown and Kevin Stewart and Billy Jack and those guys that have helped us immensely. So to slow down their time, number one, to, uh, to allow us to the time to, you know, build a saddle that has the features that, that they want and that they need, but without their input, we could never do it. Right. I, I, I mean, I gotta agree. And that's, that's what gets fun. Cause I, I'm so, I, I love business. Like I, I, the more I, the further along I get with X Factor, the, the more I'm like, okay, I, 
I love these aspects and how to how to make your product better and how to improve and and to see where you're at is it's amazing to me how big how big it is but the amount of feedback you can get uh, to develop a product is it's unbelievable I, I think especially especially in our industry I never I never thought it would be there would be this much depth to to a company I mean how many employees do you it, are involved with Equibrand now uh, 256 or so. 256. So to do that, you know, just the video production end of it that, that I get to see a lot, you know, how do you look for talent and how do you try to find these, these guys in, in something that you might not have a background in? It, it's, uh, again, there's just something about a horse, right? There's just something about a horse. I, I think that that uh, if you ask really anybody that, that within our, uh, our core at Equibrand, you know, they're going to exude excitement and passion for the brand and for the company. And, and you know, they touch other people, and it's just, uh, it's just attractive. And, you know, our team is very, very careful about who comes into the team. Uh, Walt Woodard did a speech for us one time uh, at, at Denver Market, and we invited our best customers to, to come to a dinner, and, and Walt, who is a fantastic speaker, uh, did an, gave an illustration and talked about, you know, if I'm on a table and I stick my hand down and you're on the ground, you can pull me off this table. So I'm very, very careful about who I shake hands with and who I uh, let pull me, pull on my hand whenever I'm standing on a table. Not that we're king of the mountain, but the point is, is that in any aspect, if you're a rodeo competitor, if you're, you know, a professional horseman and, and a rain cow horse uh, guy or whatever, you're pretty protective, or you should be, of your circle of influence and you surround yourself with positive people and, and uh, that's very attractive. Right. How old were you when you started to figure that out? Oh, I can't remember how old I was, but I really started figuring out after we'd been in business for about five or six years. And, and again, I was this hard-headed funnel guy that, you know, micromanaged and tried to control everything and about, you know, killed myself doing it and really wasted a lot of valuable service to great people that were already really putting up with me at that time and then just it now the the most fun that i have is is you know the great ideas that come to the table from people and members of our team and and i'm a driver i am but they drive me too right and the ones that don't do that get weeded out pretty damn quick yeah well and i think that that's it's good though because and I think this is one of the toughest positions from that you have to be in is you got to you've got to decide that because someone that doesn't have that passion about it, they need to go do something else anyways. They need because that's really life is so short that we do not we should not be wasting our time doing a job that we have no interest in or do not want to be good at. And and I think that finding those people, you know, that want to be good, that are passionate about it. You know that that and then giving them the the opportunity to grow. I, I that that's truly it's hard to do. I, I I don't 
I don't have any clue how to do it. I, I got an idea, but I, I love that. You know, that that's what I like. I watch with a little bit now. I get to see like my wife on the, the videography end and where she's kind of getting to and like, wow, in a couple of years, how talented she, I, knew, I felt like she was pretty talented, but now where she's at, I'm like, oh boy, this is, I can't believe it. And uh, to get that out of people, you know, you've, you've got to, they've got to want it. You know, that's the big thing is, and, and to understand when they do and do not want it is, is that's a hard line to, to find. Well, she's a great example because would she be as passionate about getting those amazing shots if it was in golf or swimming or something else but she has a passion for the sport of team roping she has a passion for the horse and that's the same way within our team um, we are a company that uh, of people that's actively involved in the horse industry so you know accounting in accounting in it in uh, product development, of course, but you know, within the, the, the rope business, the saddle business, the equine business, it's barrel racers, it's cutters, it's rain cow horse, it's uh, rainers, and it's uh, you know, former state champion goat tires. You know, it's it's that that's so important, so key, right? So, going back to this micromanaging at you know, for someone that's wanting to start out their business and they're, and they're going or they're involved in it, how did you, at what point did you realize, hey, I'm, I'm not doing this the right way. I, I need to, to back off or when did you realize that? I felt it. I felt that, uh, that I was doing it the wrong way. And so I actually uh, wrote a survey and a list of questions and I asked the, the, the people that, that were uh, that on our team to evaluate me. And I, I told them I want them to be as brutal honest as they could be. You know, do not worry about hurting my feelings. I want the straight answer. And uh, they did, they, they hit me right between the eyes with it. So, it, you know, they validated what I was feeling. And as soon as that happened, I started working my butt off on changing and, uh, you know, just listening to motivational speakers talk and, and, you know, turned from my total focus on how are we going to get this business done today to how can this team do some really cool things well into the future. It's just a total reversal in mindset. Right. That is a, I, I like that, you know, I think the, the ability to, to look and take advice from people close to you has to be, it, it's, it's tough because I, it's just like, I look at it with roping. If someone tells you something with your roping, like they say to me, Hey, you're, you're not good enough because you're doing it like this. Well, our first instinct is to say, I, you know, you want to be defensive and make excuses instead of like looking within and, and looking at it realistically. And I think if you can't come up with that, that truthful answer to yourself, like, hey, I, I have done it right or I'm not doing it right. And I think that that's, uh, that it's, hard to, it's hard to be really truthful with yourself because we sometimes get caught in our own deal and no one can kind of guide us along. You know, uh, 
you talked about a circle of friends or uh, of maybe people that give you advice. Is that something that you've incorporated now that you have people that maybe help you out with how you're managing things or doing things with, with your businesses now? Um, let's see. So it's, it's, I wouldn't say that it's, it's all that formal, uh, but it is uh, routine. The, the feedback that, um, that we get or that I get from, from different members of our team uh, I, you know, we don't have a uh, consultant group that we that we deal with, right? But we consult with one another frequently, and we bring in other people from other departments as necessary on whatever project. But I think that I would hope that that uh, that if you asked, you know, other people that work there, you know, it's it's a pretty open environment for communication, right? I want to get into some some team roping questions because you know you're you're involved with the industry on from the you have a lot of endorsees. In fact, were you the first company to put patches on on cowboys? I we, we claim to be. We did it at the the Windy Ryan. Windy Ryan. What year was that? Ninety two. Ninety two. Yeah, not nineteen ninety two. Who was the first guy to wear a patch? Or you talked to about it? Uh. Well, back then it was uh, T. Woolman and Al Bach and Britt Bacchus and Steve Purcella and Kevin Stewart, Rube Woolsey, Corey Koontz, um, Mike Beers was the the other one. So it was that. Okay. It was that group back then. How did that conversation? How was that received when you talked about putting patches on them? What? What? Because I mean, I'm just thinking about this. No patches. Anyway, it was just maybe banners in the arena and. Um, you know, the U.S. is pretty young at that point, just a couple years in. So, I mean, there was, there, I mean, the marketing was television, radio, banners, and I, I, maybe a little bit of newsprint. Like, Super, Super Looper didn't come on till the mid-90s, right? Like, 96 or something? Uh, no, Super Looper came on shortly after USTRC. Okay, but, okay. But, yeah, it was mainly, you know, Roper Sports News. Um Pro Rodeo Sports News, Super Looper, uh, the Rope and Pin. Well, it, Rope and Pin hadn't even started then, but they were excited. Uh, you know, they, it was something different. We did a photo shoot at the the, the Ryan the, the morning before the, the event started, and it was uh, it was it was cool. It was fun. I'd like to see that picture. You guys still got that picture? We somewhere? do. Yeah, I, I definitely want to see that one. I I mean. So from that time, you know, you, helping endorsees kind of manage themselves. But, you know, the, the one thing we see with this industry is it's expensive and all everything that goes into it. And there, it's tough to to afford to rodeo at the scale or rope at the scale that most people want. In fact, I don't know anyone that's got enough money to do it. And when I talk to them, everyone <laughs> it just seems like everyone is worried about that at that point. But if you could give advice to, to the younger crowd on how to represent themselves or what you like to see in an endorsee, what, what, do you, what jumps out to you? What, what does your team look for? Credibility. Um, it's, you know, congratulations, you're a great roper. There's a ton of them. Right. Um, you know, manage, your, manage yourself. Manage yourself on social media. Manage yourself in public. Take care of your horses because we look at it. You know, 
How do you take care of your rig? How do you take care of your horses? Um, how do you handle yourself in the arena? Uh, you know, are you a, a good sport? Are you know, we dang sure want to tie ourselves to the most talented and the most competitive, but we also want people that are, uh, you know, good ambassadors for the sport. You know, are you approachable? Are you consistently uh, humble in the arena or do you throw a fit? And, you know, how do you handle yourself uh, outside of the arena? Because chances are you're going to wear our patch uh, wherever you go. And so we pay attention to that. I would also say don't get in too big of a hurry. Um, make sure that you really believe in a brand before you sign up with it. Uh, if you're a fence jumper, you're probably not interested, interesting to us because you don't have any credibility. If today you're this company and tomorrow you're that company and now, no, I really do want to be your company and you can trust that I'll stay with you, well, I'm probably not going to, no, I'm not going to buy it. Um, and respect how much work that an Eric Rogers had to do or a Corey Koontz or a Joseph Harrison or, you know, pick out, a, pick out your hero, uh, Corey Petska. You know, they dug ditches for a long time and they, they proved it over and over again. So don't expect a company to just appreciate that, you know, maybe you've gotten to be a, a, a seven, an eight or a nine or even a 10 um, because there's, there's more work to do to get to the highest level. And, you know, honor the people that have reached that level and uh, understand that, that we respect their work ethic and understand that we respect what it takes for them to achieve that greatness. And continue on your path, continue to improve and continue to get better, but don't be in such a hurry to slap anything on your shirt or pad or breast collar just to, as a status symbol because you're not gonna get any money until you get really great from any company. Right. And if, if you can only feel good about yourself because you look like a NASCAR driver, then you're in this thing for the wrong reasons. Focus more on your sport, focus more on being a good person, and the good brands, the good companies are gonna chase you down like a, like a dog. Right. Well, and I think that it's under, understanding that it, if it is a brand that helps you and you, you're gonna pretty much use no matter what, that that's very important, but also you got to provide value first. You know, there, I don't know how many nine healers there are in the the numbering system, but there's a lot, and there's a ton of talent out there, and so making the making an effort, I think, is to to be different and to be a good, take care of your horses, be a good winner, be a good loser. You know, that's I I will never forget this talk my dad had with me one. Oof, this has been a long time ago. It was back when the Lucky Seven was at the, uh, oh, what was that old facility there in Nevada? Horseman's Park. Um, I don't know if it was Horseman's. It was a covered one. It was the, uh, it was a covered one just north of Las Vegas. Anyways, they had the Lucky Seven there just for a couple of years, and he won the 15, which back in that day that was huge. It was probably the second biggest 15 of the year, and uh, he's he just tells me, oh, pace winning's easy. Anyone can win, but being a good loser, 
that's, you know, that's when it really kind of, that's when you know, uh, you know, you're, you're on the right track. And, and I thought about that a lot. And, and when it, another time it, it kind of jumped out to me is years later, but I was at a world series open and I come back, uh, we all drove over there together. We were in Arizona. We all drove over there together. And I come back for third or fourth call in a big 13 open and I missed him terrible. And I just happened to be, I was not in a terrible mood, but I happened to be with some guys that were really fun. And they kind of, the guy that I miss for, I get along with great. And we get in the truck and we're laughing and you wouldn't have known that we won or lost. There was no, I mean, I don't even know that I had probably shaken it off and I mean, I wasn't even out of the arena and I didn't, I didn't really care. And I don't even know why that day. And maybe it was just the people I was around or I was just in a good spot in my life or what it was. But then my dad, he talked to me about that. He said, he said that, that was one of the best, like that was when he was proud of me or, you know, one of the prouder moments. He said, I was really excited to see how you handled yourself that day. And it's tough because when we lose a lot in this industry, but that, you know, those moments like that, I think it just shows your character. And, and I fall short of that all the time still. And I think a lot of us do, but to, to strive for that because we do want to be competitive and we do have these expectations for ourselves, but to understand that it's a, uh, it's a journey, it's a process and, and failure is probably the most important thing that we can get because I think that's what makes us better. I, I don't know. I, the more failures I have, the better I get at things. At least I think I do anyways. Well, you can learn from both, can't you? I mean, yeah. there's a lot to be learned from from winning and and you know in in, in business or in, in rope and either one. You know, you have to have a lot of confidence. You have to have a lot of self belief, but you just can't let your your failures uh, you know take away from your confidence. You have to be able to bounce back and believe that you can do it over again in a different way. But uh, I I don't mind positive emotion in the arena. You know, I respect Cleo Brown Cooper so much. You never know if he hit him in the butt or won first place whenever he goes out of the arena. But I also don't mind someone that, you know, you know, is a little celebratory in the right way. I think both are great. But the, uh, the fit throwing from failure is an absolute, just don't do it. I, th I think you gotta you gotta figure out how to control your emotions, and and that's that's number one. And you can be upset, but if you're upset, you gotta you gotta take it out with practice, or you gotta take it out with, you know, in a in a healthy way. And I and I do. I think that's we see a lot of professional athletes that that are self-destructive because they can't they can't handle it that way. And and I think that we see it in our industry too. And to to have that perspective, but you know that. One thing about it is it's a it's a pretty tight niche industry overall, and things like that will get out. And I think that that's what a lot of a lot of people don't understand is, you know, you, you don't want to burn bridges here. You you want to keep doors open, and you want to you want to be good to everyone. I I believe. Yeah, I I would agree. What about the process? You know, you talked to me about enjoying the process and, and making sure, you know, what you're doing is you're enjoying each and every day. Do you think that that's something you've done yourself is enjoyed the process? Yeah, I think it, it, on anything, uh, I'm, I'm goal driven. And so, you know, it's uh, never satisfied with, with anything that you've done and 
and a lot of times, you know, by the time you get to the end of the project, you're, you know, we're already off on to the, to the next task, but it's, I don't know, it's just, uh, just how, how I roll. And, you know, my, my wife is the same way and, and it's, I don't know, it's just kind of how we live, I guess, really. Right. When you say goal driven, how do you, how do you set these goals and how do you work towards them? Well, they're all the same. There's a lot of goals. You know, it's parenting, and then there's business, and then there's uh, the the horse deal. But just you know, you have to you have to have a goal, and so it it needs to you know what you define the ultimate goal number one, and then you have to come back from that, and then there has to be milestones in between. So you have to set the process for how you're going to get to step one, step two, and then ultimately to finish the goal. And you have to track it, and you have to monitor it. And, uh, you know, you have to give someday a timeline. Someday a timeline. And with these goals, because let's, let's talk like roping goals. You know, you're working with your boys. Um, they're, they have very high expectations of their, their roping right now. And, I, you know, there's, there's a lot that goes into that. But when they set these goals, do you worry about them basing them on money or financial kind of gains or how do you try to help them set their goals or how would you recommend to to someone roping or in business too because I don't think you can set financial goals in business and and have too much success well we do I I don't influence the 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 boys goals Uh, there that there's no good in that okay Uh, I encourage them to set goals and sometimes I you know over the years have you know show me what your goals are to to push them into that direction of, of making and setting goals. But uh, I can't influence that because then it's not their goal anymore. It's mine. So uh, just, you know, impressing upon them to, to, to do the work and to set the goals and, you know, to set forth a process and a tracking aspect so that they can can do it. And so that you, you build the foundation and you, uh, you have ultimate sense of achievement whenever you tick a box and reaching a milestone in a, in a goal or, or, you know, reach your ultimate goal. But so I don't influence them business wise. Um, we do set financial goals because there has to be some kind of a driver and, you know, we're realistic with those goals, but if we don't take our eye off of, of that kind of focus, then you, you can find yourself, sort of swimming around. Like I said earlier, you have to give someday a, a, a deadline. And it keeps us on track and on point. Now, would we come out with a new product just because we want to meet a financial goal if the product's not ready? Absolutely not. But, um, you know, our focus on, on marketing or product development uh, or business initiatives do have a financial uh, goal post so that we can have some sense of measure. Right. So business, it, and I, I totally agree with that because business, you have to hit certain margins because you have 258 employees that you have to pay. You have all these, you know, your Equibrand is heavily invested in a ton of youth to, to major sporting events. So cash flow is, is a huge thing. But to understand, to check the box of, hey, we need to move products or how are we going to best be able to, to get this product out? And 
and making sure that it is the right product for the people and then, and then to, to profit on that, I think is really important. I feel like what I'm curious is the financial, the personal financial, like for someone that's starting a business or into it, their finances and how they measure it. How do you take that out and then still do what's right for the business or how would you recommend to someone like that that's going into their own business or or to me with X Factor Rope and what would you say hey how how would you try to manage your business's finances or look at them and then look at your personal finances well first of all I would just say you know if if you've set a goal um, then stay true to the pursuit of that goal and understand that whenever you're you know, on a path that it's, it's ugly and it's bumpy and sometimes it's bloody and it takes a, a tremendous amount of sacrifice. And, but if you stay true to it and, you know, the, the personal financial sacrifice or the personal sacrifice of, of your, your, your time and focus, uh, you know, just has to happen. There's just no shortcut around it. Now, you also have to be realistic uh, with, you know, what you want to expect, uh, you know, financially, uh, weekly, monthly, and yearly. But, you know, man, it's, uh, there, nothing that you ever uh, do, whether it's a competitive sport, business, or otherwise, is an overnight success. Right. It's, it's, it takes months and years of grind. But, you know, reevaluate, self-reflect, and tweak your, your goal and your focus and just stay true to it. And I just think any, if, you do, if you follow that in anything and if you continue to be uh, disciplined and, you know, to work hard towards that goal, you can literally accomplish anything. I, I totally agree. Um, I, I like that with the checking the boxes off as you go along because I, I think about that for me. You hit certain points, and you're like, man, that, that feels good. We, we're here. And, and nowhere, it doesn't feel like I'm close to where I want to be. But, you know, when you hit a little milestone, it, it feels good, and it kind of fuels that fire and keeps you going. And I think it's the same way with roping and training horses. When that horse does something that you've been working on, you're like, oh, man, that, that was so good. That's rewarding. We got, but you still, like, you gotta just got to keep going. And I, I think that's that process and that that enjoying the journey in every single day where it just kind of gets feeding, you know, feeding that fire, really. Um, when you were first moving with Classic, when, you know, the, I think there's there was probably a stage where you've kind of, right when you got involved and you were just excited to be back into the industry, but there, there, I don't know what stage it was for you, but there had to have been a point where, okay, this thing, we can start taking it to some places was there a major goal or a big picture that you want like when did that come into play for you or do you remember that moment uh the moment of expansion the moment where you're like hey uh, it went from not just a business to this is gonna this is what i want to do and set a major goal for classic and or you know equibrand the whole the whole thing it really started whenever we, with with Classic Equine. Okay. Uh, that that would that would have been the real catalyst when we changed our name to Equibrand and then began to think about the what opened up from that aspect. So we were so singularly focused on 
on team roping and you know with a, a little bit of dedicated effort to calf roping not near to the degree it is today but when we started classic equine and you begin to look at the expansion of, of products and product categories within that brand and the the number of disciplines that that touches that's when it really started to click because within each discipline uh, doesn't matter if you're a rainer or a cutter or a uh, working cow horse, a barrel racer, uh, a goat tire. Um, there are, there's a specific language that's spoken within each of those groups. And so we really became, uh, you know, we could speak more languages now. And we had to speak more languages now to have credibility within each of those markets. And uh, it's just been a blast to explore the specific product needs that competitors need in all of those different Western disciplines. And so then it became really fun. Right. Because we, you know, now we've gotten, uh, I think it's 15, 17 patents on different products. And it's just, you know, by because, you know, within our team, you know, we all have horses and throw hay over the fence and we look at a horse in a different way or a sport in a different way. And, uh, you know, hauling to events or training at home or doing whatever, you know, man, it'd be nice if we had this product or that product or, you know, just to help us in our daily needs all the way up to um, what's really needed in leg protection and or saddle pads and taking a look at, you know, <clears throat> industries outside of ourselves. Golf, tennis, uh, track, football, baseball, uh, basketball, what textiles and what cool innovative uh, technology is out there helping those other sports and how can that potentially translate over here. And that fed what we did with ropes. So when we became more versed in different types of textiles and seeing how certain fibers can affect feel in a rope uh you want more tip we can do it this way you want more body we do it that way or we do a combination of this and thereof and so that really expanded our product development right well i want to talk about adversity because this was amazing to me when you guys had the fire was that 16 2015. 15. 15. 2015. November. I think, you know, one thing we all have is a ton of adversity, um, but this one's pretty, this one's got a, this one's fresh. And, and I think how it, you guys have handled it has been, I, like I, I watch and I just, I look at it and I'm like, wow, it, it almost seems like it was for the better. And, and that's crazy to think for me, like just as an outsider looking in because of how it was handled. Cause I mean, it was right there before Vegas, right? Right. It, it, we actually were, Vegas had just started. The trade show was open that day. The trade the show. the first day, I believe, yeah. And that's, you know, the, I think that's probably your busiest time of year for those 90 days, you know, maybe 30 to 45 coming up to it. And then it just seems like, at least for the rope end of it, you know, with Arizona and everything it's got going, I, I would think you're shipping a ton of, ton of volume at that point. So when that happened, you know, you get the call. What, what's your, what's your reaction to that? Well, we got the call, Craig, uh, my brother, uh, Craig Bray called and said, man, the, the rope shop's on fire. 
it was at 4 a.m. And they're just after 4 a.m. And uh, so, you know, you think everything. So uh, at that point, you know, we were just, you know, it's gonna, we got a fire and, you know, get it put out and then thinking about how we're gonna, you know, go to work that day and right and uh how are we going to build ropes in this chaos of cleaning up this little fire we had and then little we know that it uh it was you know a massive fire and it burned everything to the ground but literally that day uh whenever we knew it was a total loss uh craig and dallas uh clay and george mcquain and i we began to right then plan how we're going to, you know, start over. Ed Pender was involved, and and so we just did. And uh, I hated it more than anything for, you know, our stores and for uh, the consumers, uh, you know, ropers that, you know, have trusted our products. That was the, the biggest disappointment. And you're right. I mean, outside of the, you know, the the – the loss that it caused them, you know, either financially from our dealers or, you know, I, I, I hope that that uh, the, the ropers that, you know, choose to use our products missed us whenever we were gone. And I hope that our products truly do help them compete uh, better. Uh, otherwise, they shouldn't buy it or use it. Right. But, you know, through it, um, the, the original building had been added on to uh, – nine times so it was an add-on to an add-on to an add-on and and with the new facility we really were able to slow down a little bit and lay it out in a way that not only fit our uh, business needs for today but you know some planning for expansion into the future because we always have to think about growth right Uh, and uh, so now you know the facility that we have is something we're very 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 proud of Craig and George and Dallas did a fantastic job uh, in the layout and the design, and so it's really state-of-the-art, 100% climate-controlled. The flow works really well, and it's helped us, you know, with the production efficiencies, and now that's playing out, and and we're glad that's gone behind us, but we started planning the same day it happened. It's amazing to to think that, like, I mean, that's that's more than a bloody nose to me. (laughs) I, I would think, I mean... I couldn't imagine just it's gone. You know, everything that you're, you know, your, your distribution is all you're, you're gone. You cannot create and distribute your product. And so how to get it back moving and how long till, how long till you guys were shipping out ropes? Oh, now you're testing me. Uh, this is, this is another one of those dates that we didn't eat. Well, I will tell you this. I know that, um, I had been there probably, I went to and picked ropes up probably four or five days before it happened because we were getting ready to go out to Vegas. And I put, uh, I was using heats in and I set them under the bed. Um, and then I heard that happened and I tried to find some more ropes and, uh, and, I ha- and I bought about 10 or 15 more head ropes. And I kept those, it was 22 ropes and that's what I used. I had old practice ropes and what I ended up doing was I took about 10 to 15 practice ropes every day and I would run one, coil it up, set it down, run one. And I think these practice ropes each took over 200 runs. <laughs> I, I had, I mean, I, I know that it was about when I was done with them, they, 
I mean, there was not an ounce of you couldn't tell what they originally were. I, I mean, I that's what I, but I, I couldn't believe that they those ropes could even handle it. Like if I, I just kind of how I just took them and coiled them up right after I'd run one, and I was like, man, I, I'm they really feel pretty good for. I mean, I realistically know it was over 200 runs with each of these ropes, but I, I try to practice with some different ones, and it just I would rather have an old worn out heat than than a new rope of any of the other types just because the feel was so different and I, the weight and everything matched and it just still it, it swung that same but it it seemed like before I was out of ropes I was on my last one or two and I was thinking about I was I think I could buy some but it was a it wasn't a heat anymore I was gonna have to get something else uh, but I, I I was amazed at the timeline when we got ropes back I think it was sometime in august maybe late august when i got i got some ropes maybe around caldwell or ellensburg time i, I can't remember but I, I couldn't believe that i was we even got ropes that fast back up like it, it, i mean it was uh, probably eight months nine months or something like that yeah it, it uh it we were shipped we were we were beginning to fill the pipeline about in the fall and it was right before the finals again but yeah that's yeah. That's amazing, and I think that's what's so fun about uh, business and roping and all this is we got to deal with a lot of adversity, and and the big thing is if you can come out of adversity better off, and it's just like that, you know, it's it's been a few years, but really it was now it was probably a good thing, you know, you got to make the changes on the facility and everything's, you know, you go over there now and it's 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 the unbelievable to see how you guys are are doing it over there. Well, thank you. We're we're thankful to have it, and and uh, proud of all that's behind us, and just feel terrible for anybody that goes through that kind of a situation because it's it's rough. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's that's life. It's it's rough, and there's going to be times, and it's just it's it's your outlook. And if you can go back to that, work at it every single day with what you got, you know, it it helps. I mean, that's 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 your situation, and you got to own it, you, or it. You know, it can it owns you, I guess, you know, he'd say, yeah. well, we, I got one more question for you. You know, you talked about the word respect in, in your in your boys and, and, and instilling that in everything you do. What do, what does that mean to you to, to respect the sport and respect what you do? Well, you know, even even through the time that that uh, that we had USTRC, we always believe that it's you know it's bigger than us and all of us you know have a responsibility uh, to promote and grow the sport of team roping everyone that team ropes has that responsibility we're blessed to have this opportunity and you know unless you have your head in the sand you know look around you know the there is a a, a culture and it's, it's you know gaining some steam here that that really despises what we do in, the, in, our, in our sport. No matter how we tell them about how much, you know, we protect and the, our livestock and how much we care for our livestock that, you know, they, they don't buy into it. So, and then we just can't take it for granted. So it's up to all of us as a community of horse people and specifically as it relates to team roping, you know, to uh, to promote the sport, invite other people to come into the sport. Always, uh, you know, uh, you know, be a good sport. You don't have to like losing, but 
you you definitely have a responsibility to uh, to maintain integrity and credibility, and you know just respect the blessing and the opportunity that we have to get to do what we love so much, and don't ever take it for granted. Well, and I and I think this last 60 to 120 days ought to be a a good a good reminder for everyone of of all of the opportunities that we have and how it can be just essentially kind of taken taken away or, or not be there for us. And and I think if we can we understand that and, and treat everything that we have with with that respect and, and like it it may not be there tomorrow. And it because it, it really is it's my favorite sport and I think it's so special on how thing how we do things and I think our industry is so important for for the whole economy and, and to help people understand that in a healthy manner is, is really important. Yeah, I would agree. So I think about 60 days ago, a lot of them guys were there trying to buy guns and, and find beef and they were having a hard time there in a few, few states. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing what can change in a day. Oh my goodness. Um, well, Ken, I really appreciate it. I know we covered a lot and you've, man, you've done so much with, with everything. And that's, that's why I wanted to, to kind of get with, get with you today and just, you know, talk, talk about the business and talk about the mindset and, and what really does, you know, it went from basically rope deals out of the back of a truck to, to this type of production in, in around 30 years. It's a, it's amazing how far you can go and, and to dive into that, that mindset of what, you know, what, what gets you there? What gets you to that point? Because I think we all look at what we can do in a year or two and we, we think we can do so much. But really, if you will stick with it for 10, 20, 30 years and you enjoy that process, you can, you can do, you can make the, the biggest impact on something that you truly care about. And I think that's, that's important to understand. The guy I really respect, uh, maybe the greatest cow horse trainer that ever lived, Don Murphy, he says, a guy just has to get 1% better every day. 1%. And in 100 days, you're 100% better than the guy that started 100 days ago. Yep. Same way with a, a horse or anything else. And so we just got to get a little better every day. Right. What about if uh, someone, you know, you, you deal with this a lot and you get to see it. Maybe they're in the wrong place. I, I, I think they're doing the wrong thing. How do you help identify that or something that, as far as, I know this is kind of an odd question, but I was telling my wife this last night. I, we've been building fence outside and it's been getting pretty hot here in Texas. And I was, I loved it. I don't know why, but I was as happy as I could be out there. And I, there was nowhere else I'd rather be. And then you look at it and to some people, I got a lot. To some people, the place that I'm on and what I'm working on would be almost embarrassing to them. But I, I love it. And I was nowhere else I'd rather been that at that time. And I'm finding that the older I get, the more and more I'm in that situation, that I'm, I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be, you know? And I, and I think that you're one of those people that have lived that life, you know, of, I think you could say that you've been doing the right things, you know, or what you should have been doing. And like you, you give up the, the corporate nine to five job and, and we're able to understand that that wasn't for you and put yourself in a situation that was. How, how do you think you, or what would you recommend to someone to identify, you know, if they're doing the right thing, what, like their life's purpose? I, I just think that 
number one, you have to have a work ethic or you're not going to be able to accomplish anything. But if you have a good work ethic, then it's, it's really not uh, rocket science on, on what your passion is. If you have a passion for something, go after it with all you've got. But until you develop a passion, keep working and keep striving and moving forward and a door is going to open. And, uh, you know, everybody is given an opportunity in life. Everybody. It's up to you to do something with what you got. I like that. We'll let, you, we'll let, we'll let everyone think on that one as, as we end it. Thanks, Ken. Thank you.